This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. Good morning, Memphis. You're listening to Meanwhile in Memphis on WYXR Radio 91.7 FM. Meanwhile in Memphis is brought to you by New Memphis, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to develop, activate, and retain the city's most important resource, its people. Your hosts today are myself, Anna Thompson, and Rebecca Daly. Before we get started, I'm going to share with you a few upcoming events that we have. Big important announcement is that Election Day is this Thursday, friends, on October 5th. So if you did not participate in early voting, which was through Saturday, September 30th, you must get out to your designated polling station this Thursday, October 5th, to cast your vote and make sure your voice is heard. We also have a Celebrate What's Right, Back to the Future, coming up on October 17th. This will be at the Kent, which we are very excited about. You can learn more about all of the New Memphis events coming up at newmemphis.org slash events. And now I'm going to kick it over to Rebecca. Today we are discussing a topic that is one of my personal favorites, and that is public parks. Memphis is home to three signature parks, and we are excited to bring the leaders of these three parks into the studio today to talk about how parks can play a role in city health, livability, economic development, and more. We're excited to bring these community connectors together, and we'll let them introduce themselves. Good morning, everyone. Thank each of you for joining us. We are here with some of the leaders of Memphis's signature parks, and we're going to let them introduce themselves. Jen, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization's mission? Sure. Uh, Jen Andrews. I'm the CEO of Shelby Farms Park Conservancy. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, and we manage and operate Shelby Farms Park and the Shelby Farms Green Line. Um, Both of those properties are owned by Shelby County, so we do that as part of a public-private partnership. So everything retains public ownership, but we're able to leverage uh, that public support and multiply it many times with sponsor dollars and earned revenue um, to create a beautiful signature park that we think is world-class in the way that Memphis deserves. Thanks for joining us. Tina, you want to kick us off? Hi, I'm Tina Sullivan. I'm the executive director of Overton Park Conservancy. Uh, like Shelby Farms Park Conservancy, we manage our um, we manage Overton Park in partnership with the City of Memphis. Um, we are the um, we our park contains the oldest urban old growth forest in the Southeast United States, um, and we are centrally located um, and strategically located between Shelby Farms Park and Memphis River Parks Partnership. All right, and Carol. Last but not least. Rebecca, thanks for the invitation because anytime I get to talk to these two fabulous women uh, in any venue, I am thrilled for the opportunity. Uh, I'm Carol Coletta, President and CEO of Memphis River Parks Partnership. Uh, Like Jen, like Tina, we manage public property. We do it as a 501c3 uh, with a management agreement with the city of Memphis. Uh, We manage five miles of riverfront, and our job is to trigger the transformative power Uh, of the river by working with and for the people of Memphis. And we've got, we've completed in the last few years a number of uh, new projects, transformations of existing riverfront, uh, the latest of which was Tomley Park, the 31-acre park, uh, probably the most visible piece of property on the river, uh, in Memphis, but I'll have to argue with these two about it. But anyway, (laughs) we, uh, um, 
we all have a good time in um, sharing information uh, with each other to make public space for Memphians. Well, thank you again for joining us. Each of you mentioned your public-private partnerships and the ways that your organizations are able to support the spaces that you manage. Can you help us understand just a little bit more about that and how that differs from, say, a neighborhood park? What what does the management look like for my neighborhood city park versus one of your organizations? Well, there are lots of public-private partnerships all across the country for parks. Um, When we were putting ours together, we studied quite a few. We looked at Central Park Conservancy, which is obviously uh, one of the most noteworthy models. Also, Prospect Park um, was a big model for us in New York. Uh, They're all a little bit different. For us, uh, the deal that we were able to negotiate with the county at the time, given the political realities, um, was that uh, we would have full responsibility to manage and operate the park. So for some public-private partnerships, you know, a city public works department will have some operational or management responsibility, but we do everything top to bottom. Uh, The park rangers are nonprofit employees. Um, Everyone on the team is. And so Uh, The county gives us an annual allocation, which is about 24% of what it costs to operate the park every year. And then we raise and earn everything on top of that every year. Uh, But the county are our partners. We work with the county commission. We work with um, county government and the mayor and his team uh, in partnership. But we do have quite a bit of responsibility, both for managing the day-to-day, everything that's happening in the park, taking care of our visitors, making improvements. Uh, but the county owns everything, which is very important because it is public property. So do our tax dollars support the park at all for each of you? To some degree for us, um, we get $1.3 million a year from Shelby County. Our current budget is $5.6 million, so that doesn't uh, cover what it costs to operate a park at the level that we intend to operate it, which is the level that we think Memphis deserves uh, for a public park. So 50% of our income is actually earned revenue, which is a little bit unusual for uh, a nonprofit, and um, we do that through the rentals in our event center, or if someone is renting the grounds for a 5K or a concert or a festival, um, retail operations, we're the landlord to two restaurants. Um, so that that's how our mix works. I would add, um, parks have been chronically underfunded, and so Jen mentioned the word leveraging. So how this difference differs from your neighborhood park is that the city has a specific investment threshold And then we, with our nonprofit status, are able to then uh, go raise donations to help really enhance the um, level of care that would be provided in in the parks if if we were not there. And um, as three anchors in this region, uh, you know, we know that these three parks are drawing in a lot of visitors, perhaps more than a small neighborhood park. So they're considered anchors um, in our city makeup. So the, um, the investment is critical. Yeah, just a couple of things to add to that, because our situation is very similar to the ones that Jen and, and Tina described. I think the one of the advantages of a public-private partnership, in addition to leveraging uh, public dollars, uh, which is which all of us, I think, do fairly dramatically, you can also have a consistency of vision um, through administrations. Administrations come, they go. Um, and we're grateful to all of them. We need to work with all of them. But we also, I think, can can be more ambitious than any uh, elected official can be, given the the term of office um, that you know they are um, confined right 
to um, to have. So, so that is, I think, one of the real advantages to the community to have these public-private partnerships. I think the second one is that in in the ways we differ from neighborhood parks, neighborhood parks feel very welcoming to neighbors and not necessarily so welcoming to others. There's a feeling of I'm tr- I'm intruding on someone else's space or who is that outsider. Um, and I think in each of our cases, our um, our parks serve as community gathering places where, I mean, Jen, it's always interesting to me, the thing that inevitably people will say first about Shelby Farms, the wonderful, wonderful Shelby Farms, they will say, I saw so many diverse people there. And that's the joy of it. And, you know, in our society, we still don't see a lot of that. Our communities are ever more, our neighborhoods are ever more income segregated. Our schools are more income segregated. Even our kids' sports leagues, right, are income segregated and certainly skill segregated. And I think people sometimes don't know it, that they long for these these spaces where they're really in community with strangers. They're in the company of strangers, if you will, and they're and everyone is quite joyful. But when they get it, they don't know they want it, but when they get it, when they experience it, they're ecstatic about it. it it's just it's so uplifting. It's so surprising. And I would say our community needs as much of that as we can deliver and more. So each of you mentioned that all the unique differences between your parks and organizations from like a neighborhood park, for instance. And Carol, you mentioned community gathering spaces as well. So I'm curious what you would say to an outsider, like an, a non-Memphian, about what is so important, that Mem- why it's important that Memphis has these anchor parks in addition to other green spaces or public spaces. Well, again, there's nothing new here because communities, it's not that Memphis needs them. We all need them. America needs them because America, again, is more divided than ever. And we fear the stranger. We fear what we don't know. And because of the way we live, uh, in our neighborhoods and schools and churches, I mean, just go down the list, we frequently do not come into contact with people or in any sort of intimate, maybe a transactional contact, but not an intimate or not an equal contact with people who uh, particularly make less or more money than we do. And it's the glue that really holds community together, that whole, I would argue holds democracy together. I mean, if we cannot feel that people who are different than we are are part of our community, that we we share some sort of common interest, um, I think everything falls apart. And so in my mind, yes, parks provide fun and respite and um, peace, and God knows we need more of that these days. But I think at their best, they're really, they really underpin what's needed to build strong communities. Great equalizer. Mm-hmm. In tapping into to that kind of thought pattern, understanding the economic impact that a park can have and the way that it also brings people from different socioeconomic backgrounds together. Um, Jen, you mentioned Shelby Farms Green Line. Can you talk a little bit about the special connection that that made for the neighborhoods touching that trail? 
Sure. And, you know, we've, uh, Tina and Carol and I have all had to spend time making the economic case for parks over the years um, because that's important to people who make decisions, particularly decisions about um, giving money or sponsorship or, you know, legislation. Um, so we've, we've spent a lot of time having to make the case that parks actually make a stronger local economy. I, I think there are a few data points that people point to. One is um, increased property values. So I think uh, a lot of the people that live near the Green Line, even though when we were getting ready to build it, they were a little bit nervous or putting a public trail through their backyard. That was understandable. We spent a lot of time talking to people. I think everyone who lives there would uh, would validate that the Green Line has improved their property values and has made that all of the neighborhoods uh, that it runs through more attractive um, to live near. And um, I think that also, you know, large companies that are in Memphis uh, rely on some of our uh, key amenities like public parks when they're recruiting. In the early days when we were getting ready to put the vision together for Shelby Farms Park, one of the most encouraging things we would see even before we had made any improvements, was we would see people from FedEx or AutoZone bringing out new recruits. As they were touring them through the city, they brought them to the park because they wanted them to see it. And that was before we invested $70 million in improvements. So we knew that it would work. You know, that uh, there were people who were relying on these parks uh, and these amenities to sell the city to others. Um, but, you know, beyond the that sort of financial case, I, I think too often... We've talked about our parks as though they're nice to have or luxury or icing on the cake. And I think that we all feel that parks are critical infrastructure in a city. If you don't have great public parks, if you don't have a connected, walkable, bikeable park system, it's difficult to be a strong city or a strong community. One of the special things about the Green Line, you know, it's a 12-mile rails-to-trails project. It's a, a paved trail that runs from Cordova all the way into Midtown. Uh, it links together some of the most diverse neighborhoods in the city, some of the wealthiest neighborhoods, some of the neighborhoods that are the most under-resourced. Uh, and all of those people were already neighbors. I'm not sure that they considered themselves neighbors, um, but they certainly do now because they all use the trail. It's very well used. It's very safe. Uh, it's beloved by everyone who lives near it. So I think there's um, a literal physical linking of people together through public space. It's very special. Speaking of linking people in public spaces, Tina, you have a wide range of activities that your visitors can enjoy in Overton Park. They range from an incredible dog park to the old forest to even a golf course on the property. Can you talk about what it's like to manage the input of so many different user groups? Well, <laughs> it's, it's uh, always a challenge. Uh, people are very opinionated opinionated about the assets that they love so much. And um, one of the things that we try to do is listen. We listen well. Um, that helps uh, funnel that passion into constructive outputs. So um, the a lot of our um, guiding principles have been shaped by the community outreach that we've done over the last several years. We've been working on a, a comprehensive plan for the park. We're wrapping it up. And um, it, it is infused with a lot of that passion that people have. And it, it varies, you know, it, it's um, because there's so many different types of activities. We have this incredible urban old growth forest, which serves as sort of a centerpiece for our organization. It's our guiding principle um, because it's so important to conserve that. But we also remind ourselves that not everybody wants to go explore nature, that some people want to come to the park to get onto the playground or play golf. And um, all of those things are, 
um, in close proximity to this forest. And so the, that design aesthetic is infused into those other assets. Um, and we use that as a teaching tool is to get people excited about, you know, taking the next step and going into nature. Um, but for the most part, we like we like to listen. We want to deliver what people say they want. We want to. We also want to, you know, learn from the best and um, bring our park up to um, the highest and best standards. And um, but make sure that we're meeting what our um, unique Memphis culture is expecting. Can I ask Tina a question? Because I, I think in a lot of ways she has the toughest job uh, of the three of us because you've got assets in Overton Park that each have their own brand, they have their own boards, they have their own fundraising cycles and demands, and yet Overton Park, and, and you, don't, uh, you don't control those boards. So, th- I mean, that is a real collaboration. Uh, how do you manage to keep the Overton Park brand coherent, and how do you raise funds for Overton Park, the master plan you just referenced, when there's so many... Um, collaborative, you probably have interests that, you know, cooperate in the morning and compete in the afternoon, I would think. <laughs> so so how do you do that? that? That's a tough one, Tina. Well, thanks. It's, um, you know, it's also, it also presents a lot of opportunities. So um, <laughs> we are, we are, yes, in- <laughs> opportunities, only challenges, <laughs> no problems. Um, well, it's obvious that we've had our problems over the years with, you know, the different ideas of how we should use particular spaces between our organizations. Um, and, you know, with, um, we are very intentional about, um, Setting the table for collaboration with our partners in the park. Um, each of the nonprofits that operate real estate in the park have a seat on our board. So they have a front row, um, a, a direct seat at the table with, uh, every, with our decisions about how we move forward. So um, I'll use our uh, wayfinding signage program that we uh, implemented a few years ago. We made sure that that everyone had a say in how we designed those signs and where we pointed people to. And we had a little bit of negotiation around how to deliver that without adding signage clutter to the park, how to be effective and how to make sure that people were trying to find the places that they wanted to initially go, but then how to also be encouraged to explore other uh, other areas in the park. So if somebody's coming to the zoo, they may just be passing through. But while they're passing through, they may see a sign that says, oh, there's a playground over here. And so they'll take a picnic and, and have fun after, after the zoo visit. Um, we also intentionally collaborate on programming. I just hired our first programs manager, our first official member of the team dedicated solely to programming. And one of the first things she did was begin having monthly meetings with our partners to look at our programmings as a piece. At how can we complement each other? What are we doing that presents opportunities for us to lift all the boats how can we describe through programming this one park experience so we're working towards things like potentially a joint summer camp where we you drop your kid off and every day they get a different kind of experience they get art they get music they get animals they get nature golf um so wow we're we're also i so want to be a kid right now going through summer camp with um and then we, you know, we get together and talk about um, security. We talk about um, logistics, operational logistics, events. How do we, how, how can I host a fundraiser on a Saturday night and you host a fundraiser on a Friday night and we don't step on each other and we, we lift each other up and leverage each other's um, 
supporters because we do share supporters. I, I, you know, Jen and we, we've, you and Jen and I have all talked about our, um, we have overlap in our donor base. And rather than saying that we're competing for support, we say we're sharing support. And the goal is to lift, lift up the p- conversation about parks in Memphis and create a bigger demand for more support, for more investment. Tina and I actually worked on the same team uh, more than a decade ago, um, which was really, really fun. And we still act like we work on the same team. We um, are. One, one of the most important lessons that she taught me when we worked together was that uh, she, she said, I am a collaborator, not a competitor. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that as we were working together. And then even after she left, I spent a lot of time thinking about that and what the difference is uh, between collaborators and competitors and the fact that we share donors, that we share supporters, that um, we share attention in the public, uh, it would be easy to compete over those things. And, um, you know, ambition is great. Uh, but I think Tina's ethos around collaboration for the public good and for the greater good is why she's been such an incredible leader in the specific moment in time for Overton Park because of all of those challenging relationships that uh, if you didn't take that approach, if you didn't choose a culture of collaboration over a culture of power or authority or ambition uh, or one-upsmanship, I think we would have a different Overton Park. And I think that that collaborative spirit has um, infused itself into the brand. That's what I think of when I think of Overton Park. Um, And I think that's a gift that they are giving to the public. I feel like it's pretty evident in this room, so I'm hoping it's coming across too from um, our listeners, but that all of the three of you and the parks collaborate so well together to lift Memphis up until it be anchors for our city and make sure that the access to public spaces and gathering spaces is available. So I want to just note that for the three of you, because again, it would be easy to compete rather than to collaborate. Um, Tina, you mentioned something, and that was a lovely question from you, Carol, about how you manage so many kind of competing priorities in that way. I'm curious in the same way, community input. So yes, all three of you are um, very open to you know listening and giving the people what they want. But to what extent to that matter of like y'all y'all do know best. I mean, y'all are looking at things beyond community surveys. You're looking at what has worked well historically. You're looking at what has worked well across other public private partnerships, and you're also innovating on top of that. So how is that um, kind of relationship with the community, that give give and take? Well, sometimes it does pull, um, it, it sometimes, <laughs> when you're deciding where to put a path, uh, build a path, you're generally going to wait and see where the desire lines are, it, it, you know, in some cases. Um, you know, you can, you can, uh, get into a um, a boxing match over. I think the sidewalk needs to go ten feet to the left. But if everybody's still going to walk ten feet to the right, you know, you should might you might as well put the sidewalk there. Um, now the innovation piece is different. You um, the people who are coming to the park every day aren't necessarily thinking about parks the way the three of us are thinking about parks. Um, and uh, you know, so it's it's up to us to do the research to um, to find the new solutions and the better ways to meet a changing changing population changing um technology there are so many things that um uh, we have to adapt i mean we have this george kessler park that was designed in 1901 but we can't 
operate as if it were 1901. It's a different world. We have uh, major highways on three sides of, of Overton Park. So we have to make sure that we're um, bringing in the uh, balancing the latest technology, the latest design interventions with those established desire lines and the things that are that are making the existing experience a thriving and bustling and dynamic existence. So, you know, it's just this sort of watery balance uh, of how, you know, how to make sure that we're listening and delivering what people want, but also bringing in, you know, the, the elevated experience. I don't think I answered your question exactly, but no, I think you did. Yeah, I think that's it. And I love your um, metaphor of the desire lines. I think that's really good, but um, not but and I, I have a, a an executive committee member, uh, Alan Crone, who likes to say nostalgia is the most powerful hallucinogenic. And I think that is spot on. And I will never forget that because people People can tell you a lot about how they live, and but I think unless they've seen it, they can't describe what they want. So I think you have to work hard to understand how, you know, how people describe how they're living and what may be missing for them, and then you interpret that with the you know with designers and people who have uh, seen and, and worked on and designed parks and public space all over the world and pull from their knowledge. And when you use a space every day, I think that's it, it gets to where that's the only way you can imagine using it. That's the only way you can imagine it ever being. And so people are, they very much resist change and they're always suspicious of change. And I think one of the most difficult parts of innovation is to helping it is to help people make the leap between what they know and what can be uh, there's so there's a lot of fear I think sometimes it's like we don't deserve good things or you play out this thing of well don't build anything nice because we can't maintain it and you're going okay so that means we should never build anything I mean I, I get the point. I mean, we all work very hard at maintenance. We know how hard it is. We know how expensive it can be. But that you've really got to push through the skepticism, the the feeling that people, I think even still now coming out of COVID, you know, the uncertainty, the incoherence of life, the, you know, radical change, the fear that COVID is going to hit again in a tough way. So we live in an interesting place where on the one hand you want people to be engaged you want ideas i mean i send info at memphisriverparks.org we answer every email very promptly you got an idea we're all ears but so much of the opposition to things gets played out in social media it gets played out with rumor past you know to very quick rumors amplified negativity amplified so that all works very much against negativity because, you know, we're depending on not just public sentiment and trying to get, you know, seven votes at council, in my case, and a mayor to, you know, approve what we're doing. You know, you're also, you've got to win the social media battle and the mainstream media battle. It's very, it's, it's very hard to make change and you really have to be so persistent and then you have to i love your phrase of watery that's a great phrase right it's a watery line there and and how you can be both 
assertive and ambitious without building something that's a vanity project or will not, you know, will not meet the needs of people. And I, I think it's just you've got to listen, but you've got to lead. It's listen and lead at the same time. Um, I'll just give you one other quick story that I think is interesting because the centerpiece of, of Tom Lee Park, the new park on the riverfront, um, is the Sunset Canopy right in the center of the park. It's just like wildly successful. And I remember going to former University of Memphis, Memphis State, really, basketball players. And we talked to them about basketball because we had a youth group working alongside the design team to design the park. And they said, well, you need to put basketball right in the center of the park. And we were thinking, okay, well, let's explore that a little more. We went to the former players and they said, you know what? We would play in our neighborhood. But if somebody came to our neighborhood to play, trouble would brew. Same thing if they went to someone else's neighborhood. We would love to have a neutral space. And so they considered the river. They said, oh, that, that would be great to have a place to play. I wish I had that when I were young, you know, when I was young growing up, because then I could have played with the best players all over town. And I thought, okay, yep. And, and that's just one way that we find this neutral ground, this place for everybody, this place where everyone really is welcome and feels they belong there. And I think there are lots and lots of those stories, but they were describing their own experience. And I think that's where community engagement is really useful when people are describing their own experience. I think that sometimes when people care a lot about something, they think that the best way to protect it is to make sure that it never changes. Yeah, well in, said. In, in our work, I think, I don't want to speak for you guys, but... You know, the way I feel about it is that if you want something to matter 50 years from now, 100 years from now, especially something like an urban park, what's most important is that it's beloved and that it's relevant to people. And if it's beloved and it's relevant, it will be protected. People won't let it, people won't let anything bad happen to it if they really, really care about it. I think that sometimes our ambition is limited by our self-esteem as a community. I think that's part of why we're in the work. You know, we do this work because we want to raise the collective self-esteem and the collective expectations that people have here for what's possible in the public realm. You know, we want to show people what's possible. So if people come to Shelby Farms Park and they see that despite everybody who said we couldn't do it, and there were many, many people all along the way who said, don't even try, it's going to be too hard, never going to get it done, you'll never raise the money, you'll never get the political support, you'll destroy the park. You know, I think all of those people come and use the park and love it. And when we were building it, we were building it for them, too. Uh, I think that making these spaces beautiful and relevant and interesting and thoughtfully designed uh, with diversity in mind always uh, means that they're going to last and be protected. I think one of the hardest balances that I think about is how to create things that, uh, you know, how to make 50-year decisions, 20-year decisions, these longer-term decisions, but also embracing the ephemeral way that people want to use a park because it changes over time. I've, I'm coming up on 17 years at Shelby Farms Park. I've <laughs> been there my entire adult life. Um, and the way that people want to use the park now is subtly different than the way that they wanted to use it before. Uh, you know, I'll give an example. Um, we produce a major holiday light show every year, Starry Nights, which raises a lot of money for the park. It is an enormous effort to produce, but we're proud to do it. For years, people drove through the show they came, they bought their ticket, they drove through, they drove out of the show, and that was it. And then two years ago, everything changed. People started getting out of their cars 
all of a sudden, all of them <laughs> getting out of their cars all throughout <laughs> the show. Uh, Rebecca will remember it was a, a, a major undertaking. I mean, we were shocked. We had we didn't know why they were getting out of their cars, but it wasn't just a few people. It was every single night. It was all throughout the show. So we had to really change our approach, and we had to create um, what we called a selfie station, where we were sort of corralling people to say, there will be an opportunity to get out of your car and take pictures and engage with the displays, which is not what they were designed for, but that's what people want. So, you know, we, we do also think about trying to embrace those ephemeral things as culture changes, as um, the way people engage in public space change. But I think for a lot of these anchors, we're really trying to make these long-term decisions. So not every idea that comes up for a park is going to be appropriate. And it is difficult, you know, sometimes to help people see that, you know, an ATV park would be really, really fun, but probably not the best use for Shelby Farms Park. You know, we honor the idea, we explore it, but we're guided by our master plan, which puts some boundaries on what's possible, uh, which is helpful because that's a shared collective vision that we have for the park. Uh, but we do look for those opportunities to embrace what people are interested in. I think so often as a community, we restrict ourselves to looking at the before and after of a project, but not seeking to understand the why behind the choices. And it's easy to look at an after and poke holes in it without understanding the ways that these projects complement the community and complement the spaces that you're managing. Um, Jen, you mentioned a master plan. And Tina, you mentioned an overall plan for the uh, Overton Park. And Carol, I know you've been through plenty of planning um, phases, but can you speak a little bit about the ways that you are bringing innovative design and experiences to these spaces in ways that actually complement the parks as they existed before? Well, you know, we're um, our master plan has been in place for a while. We're kind of all three in different stages, I think, when it comes to, to planning. But um, the reason we ended up selecting the master planner that we did was because of all the ones that we uh, talk to, they had the lightest touch to the land. Um, Shelby Farms Park is a 4,500-acre park, plus then the additional 12 miles of the Green Line. We've, we've got a lot uh, on our hands. And um, a lot of designers were, I think, so enthralled with the idea of a space that big in the middle of, in a true urban park, you know, with city development on every side of it, um, that they wanted to fill it up with lots of stuff. You know, which you you understand the impulse. You know, when when else is a city park designer going to have the opportunity to get their hands on a piece of property that big? But um, field operations, the the firm that we selected, uh, really embraced what people already loved about the space and um, thought about how to elevate what was already special about it. And the public reacted really, really well to that. And uh, we were glad because that was what we wanted too. A light touch to the land that nonetheless brings some innovation, shows us opportunities that we probably couldn't have come up with ourselves, uh, gave us an organizing principle for the property. They, they said in a, a space this big, you think about it like rooms in a house. Each room has its own distinct function. You do, you do different things in the kitchen than you do in the laundry room, but they all should feel like they belong in the same house. And so that's how we have thought about our big public space. Well, we made... <laughs> Dramatic changes on the riverfront, and obviously everyone knows, everyone who's alive uh, knows that we went through a major mediation process with a festival that had used the park, uh, Tom Lee Park, for many, many years. So that was a, a contentious endeavor. Um, I mean, the park essentially was, we were favoring people who were using the park for seven days a year on a paid basis, and it was it was difficult for anyone else to enjoy the park given the 
state it needed to remain in for that festival to feel like they could produce what they wanted to produce. We had two parks with Confederate associations that were very, very sleepy. You know, we had a very different situation. And then we had Mud Island, which was opened. And when Tina, when you said, I've got a George Kessler Park that was opened in what, designed in 1901, I'd rather have one (laughs) designed in 1901 than 1970, <laughs> what, uh, Mud Island opened in 1982, not a great year for parks. And so I think have had to radically rethink the five miles of riverfront. We've got property on either end that um, are just wondrous as natural landscapes. One has a gorgeous piece of art. We're kind of good to go there. But all of the central area, in an attempt, like you said, Jen, in an attempt uh, to fill it up and make it, you know, like lively and, you know, robust. Lots of mistakes were made. And and it was very much a park of that moment, 1982, Mm -hmm. uh, that then got played out as a theme park without a theme park program underneath it to support it. It's very, you know, there's lots to say about that. But I mean, we picked up a lot of, uh, I don't want to say dead space, I mean, incredibly opportunity-filled space, uh, but not used much at all. Uh, I mean, except for the nearby residents. And we, we also had this interesting group that would come to the riverfront, primarily, I think, from the disinvested, under-resourced neighborhoods uh, in that um Crescent uh, around downtown who would come to the riverfront for peace. It was just like the notion of just being able to sit and watch the river gave them some respite from whatever the chaos at home or in the neighborhood was. And that we very much tried to honor. But I think we had to do some radical rethinking. And thus, it was controversial and and probably in some ways will remain so. The good news is uh, the... I, I think every time we've opened a re a renewed space, it has been embraced. And so that in that way we think we're on the right track, but it still feels like a slog getting there. And I one level at from thirty thousand foot level, I get it. I do. But at the ground, you know, it can be it can be difficult to just maneuver through it. The new park is so beautiful mm-hmm. and so exciting and important and so thoughtfully designed and everyone I've talked to about it and granted I'm talking to a lot of people that love parks (laughs) 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 everyone I've talked to about it is uh, thrilled surprised in the best way delighted Um, I, I think it's something we should all be very 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 proud of well, I think all three of these parks are real jewels, and uh, they make, I mean, one of the things we did, and I know you did too, I mean, it's, I don't consider myself in the park business, right? I consider myself in the city building business, and parks just are one way to get there. And I do believe that if you look at the national press around the opening of Tom Lee, what your two parks have generated as well for Memphis it's very good news. I mean, it, it, we look like an ambitious city when you consider what's been done in these, in these three public spaces. And for me, you know, what we have to do is convince Memphians, 
as I, as we said in the opening, this is Memphis. This is not some anomaly. This is not some alien coming down to do something to your city that we can't do every single day. That's the ambition we need to have as Memphians is that, no, no, Shelby Farms, Overton Park, these are not, it, Memphians did this. You know, yes, we had help from the best talent around the country, and we always need help from the best talent around the country, around the world. We shouldn't be afraid of that. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. We need to go get talent when we need it. But this happened in Memphis with Memphis support, with Memphis money, with Memphis ambition, with Memphis master plan. We can do this, Memphis. So what else can we do? We can do parks. I think we've proven we can do parks. And Nick Walker's killing it for the city. Yeah, mm-hmm. Our doing parks a great director, job. he's mm-hmm. doing a great job. For the first time in, I don't know, 50 years, there's ambition around city parks. And Nick is just killing it. So check, we're doing that. Now what else can we do? Let's go tackle you know, the other challenges, let's make a lot of new things happen. And you got to get Memphis to believe that they have the power to make good things, ambitious things happen. That is part of our DNA. We've got we've got to convince ourselves now that's part of our DNA. And the more we do it and the more evidence that piles up that we can do it, then the more we believe we can do it. I mean, that's how you get the flywheel going in a city is getting people to believe that we can be more than we are today, not just complain about it, but that we can join hands and be more than we are today. And that's the opportunity, what you're doing. You, you know, you're trying to train the next generation to understand how to make that difference. And that, to me, seems um, just critically important. We've got to believe. We've got to, we've got to move forward. I think it's so easy to be on social media or at your computer and... Um Complain? To feel well, I think it's easy to feel despair, you know, based yes. on what you see, and I think despair is dangerous. And I think hope is powerful. And um, you know, I get to go to work at a beautiful public park every day, and I have for many, many years. And and I know that that makes a difference on my perspective. And we live in such a divided time, as Carol has said. You know, there are so many people that I think feel hopeless or lost or alone or isolated or ignored or shut out. Um, and I, I always tell people, if you want to feel hopeful, you should come to a park. Um, any of these three would be great. You will see when you go to that park, people from all different kinds of backgrounds, all different kinds of people sharing space together that nobody owns more than anybody else. No one has a greater right or entitlement to it than anybody else has. And they're there together doing something in a place that they both value that they all value together. And I think it shows you what's possible. I know it probably sounds a little bit Pollyanna-ish to think that that's what a community would look like, but it is community at a park. Um, So for anybody who needs to feel some hope, get out to your public parks. I think you'll be um, moved by what you see. And these three parks are great, but but we don't have the lockdown on, you know, community investment and community um, advocacy around parks in Memphis. If you travel around to... Um, any neighborhood, you're likely to find someone who is leading a group of children to pick up litter in their park or, you know, doing pop-up soccer training. I mean, there there is a lot of that happening across the city now, and that story deserves to be told, too. Great point. What do you um, see as, I guess you've all mentioned it in different ways, but I'm curious, like in a kind of succinct, collaborative way, how you see par- parks as the spark for 
innovation and community, how they can be used as a model not only for other cities, but as a model for Memphians to be proud of their city. Well, I think Carol nailed that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think when you demonstrate to people what's possible, you know, for a community like Memphis to come together and do something bold and ambitious, um, to push through opposition, to keep your eye on the horizon, to deliver the thing that people said that you couldn't deliver, and then to gift it to them uh, equally to the people that said you couldn't do it as the people that were rooting for you. I think that Carol's right. Every time we do this, every time we build the Green Line or you know build Shelby Farms Park or Overton or Tom Lee, solve hard problems at Overton you know that are going to have generational positive impact, um, I think that we are showing people examples of what's possible and hoping that people will pick up the torch and replicate that elsewhere. And I think that we're also elevating the expectations that people should have. Not every park needs to have a public-private partnership. In fact, that I would not advocate for that model um, for a number of reasons. I, I think for the parks that we have, these signature parks, you know, they play a specific role in a park ecosystem. And the political and financial reality here is that if you want parks like these, this is the model that will deliver that. You know, but I, I think that thriving, vibrant neighborhood parks uh, also deserve more investment, as Nick has so successfully advocated for. So I hope that people come to these parks and imagine what's possible in their neighborhood parks and uh, then go advocate for that and then give the effort to try to make it happen, donate some money, uh, volunteer. It's a perfect segue. Yeah, go ahead. Well, if it comes back to engaging people around the um, designing the future of these public spaces, you know, that model, it's not just it's it's the innovation and the imagination that it takes to deliver something spectacular like our newest success story at Tom Lee Park. Um, but it's the process as well that's important. It's that people um, feel empowered to take that activism and turn it into something that delivers results. And that should be replicated again, whether it's you know, parks or schools or neighborhoods or transit, you know, as citizens become more engaged and involved and empowered, then hopefully that, you know, that drives change. Jen, you mentioned a few ways that um, listeners can get involved in any of your three parks, but parks generally or activation, like you said, Tina, just generally, whether it's education, whether it's transit. Um, so aside from volunteering and the obvious donating, which hear us loud and proud donating to any of these. Um, what are some other ways that listeners might be able to support this endeavor? I think more than anything, we, we want you to come to your parks and to celebrate being there and to bring other people and to have a great time. Now, on top of that, we do also need your help. Um, uh, those donations are so important. You know, this is not a sexy answer, but unrestricted operating dollars are the lifeblood of uh, a nonprofit like mine. We, we need the support. 25% of our income is... Uh, donated. Um, but also keep in mind, if you choose to have your family picnic or your high school reunion or your prom or your corporate retreat um, at Shelby Farms Park, those fees that you pay to use those spaces also go right back into the park. So you're spending money that you would be spending anyway to book a space. And at the same time, you're supporting a park. And that's true for uh, Overton and for the River Parks as well. You know, when you're participating in some of the commerce opportunities that we've created, you are supporting the park. So uh, we are preparing to open a new coffee shop at the park, at the visitor center. Uh, by the time that you hear this, uh, depending on when you're listening to it, it's probably open now. So uh, go visit Bell Tower and get the Grasshopper, my favorite. <laughs> um, 
you know, come to Coastal Fish and uh, enjoy a great meal, um, book our picnic pavilions. Um, you know, there are lots of different ways to support parks. Those are the ones that come to mind for me because those are the things that drive sustainable, high-level operations at the park, which is what everybody wants. We're all also in election season, so I'm going to say uh, ask questions of those who are running in your council race, in the mayor's race. Ask questions uh, about where they stand on support. Uh, the conversation about crime has unfortunately crowded out almost any other discussion. Um, and while you know everyone is concerned about crime in cities across America, um, understandably, that's very real. But um, if you want to, if people wanted to live in crime-free communities, they would all be moving to small towns, right? Where uh, they don't have to necessarily uh, live with a lot of other people. But they're not doing that. They're still moving to cities. People still want to be with other people. So the question is, what will make them want to live in Memphis, invest in Memphis, whether it's time, talent, money, whatever it may be? Um, we've got to think about those things as well. And there's been almost no discussion of those issues. Uh, I don't think I've heard one single solitary question in a mayoral debate, and we've had many, uh, about amenities, parks, libraries, community centers, uh, unless it gets put under the umbrella. This is the new economic impact umbrella for how why you do amenities to keep youth from uh, committing crimes on the street. So now we're under the crime umbrella. I actually think it's great to have, I mean, we run youth programs. And you, Tina's just described, again, a fabulous one. But they're more than that. <laughs> That is that is one good reason, but there are so many more, and we've got to start thinking. I mean, people can people with the wherewithal to live anywhere, and that's a lot more people today. Why will they choose Memphis? And this pounding negative narrative that has dominated the mayor's race, dominates TV in particular, is taking up a lot of airspace that we need to use to talk about how we move this community forward. And so I would say talk to your candidates uh, and please vote. And once you vote, let them know how you feel, uh, what's important to you. And I hope that parks and um, similar civic assets will be uh, something you talk to those uh, people who represent you about. I just wanted to take a minute and have you each kind of go around the table to talk about one um, one thing you're most excited about in your respective park right now. What's, you know, what do you consider a big win or what is making you happy today? Um, it can be something small. It can be something large. It can, you know, whatever's making you really excited about the work that you're doing right now. Well, I'm excited about Bell Tower, and part, part of it's because I just love the opportunity to create more amenities for our visitors, and part of it's because I work in that building, and I want delicious coffee on demand. Um, we, you know, that that building has been, our, um, 
that facility has been closed for uh, over a year, closed during COVID, um, largely due to COVID. Food service and parks is so, so, so hard. Uh, it seems like it should be easy, but it's not. Uh, and so onboarding a new vendor uh, or a new uh, a new partner that we have a contract with, you know, it's been really interesting and fun to work with uh, this group. They're young entrepreneurs. They've got a great business plan. It's been thoroughly vetted. They've got business mentors. They're uh, ambitious in the same way that we are. Um, it's been really invigorating to work with them. And um, I'm very, very grateful, uh, you know, for all the people who are at the park early uh, when I'm there early, early in the morning and who come in and ask me when we're going to have coffee. I'm just so excited to be able to point them right down to the end of the front porch at the visitor center so that they can get some. Coffee shows up a lot on Overton Park's uh, community engagement surveys. Um, So I'm I'm excited about Bell Tower too. Uh, But I'm also excited. There's a lot of change, uh, you know, coming up in Overton Park. We have, we have some positive things that we've completed. The golf course is 99% there. And um, if you haven't been to the, Abe Goodman Golf Clubhouse lately. It's been renovated. It's beautiful. They have cheap local craft beers, and they've just started a lunch service Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Um, We're about to begin construction on implementation of our long-awaited zoo parking solution, and that'll be lovely to see some groundbreaking around that and some of the, um, the wonderful new assets that will follow um, the Metal Museum will begin renovation of Rust Hall soon, and so we'll we'll all they'll have a coffee shop. Well, they'll have a cafe, I think, in their in their new building, um, and then we'll all be able to take programs around metal smithing. It's fabulous. Um, it's a big question mark what will happen with Brooks Museum, um, but with change brings opportunity. I'm sure there will be some challenges along the way there as well. And then the Conservancy continues its march forward on um, programming that brings people together. We per- we were so grateful to participate in the reimagining the Civic Commons network that Carol launched here in Memphis, and we've learned so much about that and um, and through our community engagement, what people want from the Conservancy in terms of environmental education programming. So our new programs manager, Dr. Mariah Carrasco Harris, has um, developed a kind of a three-pillared mission statement for our programs. Environmental education leading to ecophilia, getting people excited about conserving the old forest. Um, health and wellness that includes, uh, you know, physical health, mental health, um, but also she describes social health, which is that living in community and the, the benefits that you get from that. And then the third pillar is self-expression. So really drawing on the uh, legacy of arts in Overton Park, but also the legacy of Memphians just making their voices heard about whatever topic. And so that's those, those are the three pillars that are forming the foundation of our programming. Um, so pay attention to Nature Zen Month. In, uh, the whole month of October, we'll be running a lot of exciting things. That's great. That's so fun to hear. Um, I am most excited when I'm in Tomley Park right now. Um, and I'll two examples. One, one last night I was walking through about sunset and it was just beautiful. The park was really active. And so I was, I was on the phone actually with a, a friend and walking through and all of a sudden I came up on the hammock grove and it, every hammock was full. And it was full of couples and families and someone with their dog and then singles and the, you know, everyone had their shoes off. And it's always a surprise when I run onto it. It's so quiet and it's just, it's just, it's just so lovely to see people in a public place just 
enjoying themselves so peacefully in a hammock by some stranger. I don't know. I, I, I'm all over that. The other thing was um, last weekend, I had a really interesting experience. We had a DJ uh, in, the, in the Sunset Canopy, and at one point he saw me, and I had my staff badge on, and he said, uh, yeah, let's, let's, if you like Tumley Park, give a thumbs up. And, you know, everybody stopped. The basketball players stopped. Every <laughs> thumbs up. And then um, he said, yeah, that lady had something to do with it. And it was like, yeah, yeah. And everybody applauded. But then what was interesting, I continued to pick up garbage because every, everybody knows <laughs> me. That's my thing. I had my glove on. So I was picking up garbage, and my hands got really full. Two basketball players, grown men, stopped came over to me and said, let me help you with that. And one of them said, thank you so much for giving me and my kids a place to play. And even saying that makes me tear up because it's like that, and I'm sure you both have this feeling, that overcomes a thousand ugly social media posts. I mean, then you go, this is it. That's all I need. Just something to say we're on the right path here for the larger community and i i just that is really so um affirming i i like to say you know two percent of the people are knuckleheads and 98 percent of the people are just good folks trying to do what they do to you know get through life and it's um it reminds you that if we just try a, just a little bit we can make this a great place for everyone to live and um, that's what I think that's what being in the company of strangers where everyone is sharing space joyfully together is um, it means something. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do the job and think that's the result. Mm. It's the power of public parks. Mm-hmm. Thank you each for joining us today and for all that you do day in and day out to make Memphis beautiful and we can't wait to see what's next for each of you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. Independent Bank is celebrating 25 years of sharing your stories, building your dreams, and serving you heroically. Find out how iBank can help you achieve your financial dreams at i-bankonline.com. Member FDIC.